I, I don't, I mean, I don't know what God's, all his thoughts and plans were, but I, I, th I was like, I, I feel like I came to a place in my life where God knows me better than I do. His plans are better than mine. Believe me, I tried earlier in life to, to do things my way. Um, I finally learned just trust God. He has his reasons and I don't want to do anything that's outside of his will. Welcome to the Women in Work podcast, the show that inspires you to confidently step into your God-given calling and view your work as meaningful to the kingdom of God. I'm Courtney Moore. And I'm Missy Branch. We want to introduce you to women who through their own unique vocations are seeing what they do make an eternal difference. And we pray these conversations will inspire you in your own calling to honor God, to image Him to the world through your work, and to leverage your potential for His glory. Thank you so much for joining us today. Friends, welcome to the show today. Missy and I are really so excited um, about our guest today. We just trust that you are going to be encouraged. I'm looking forward to being encouraged and um, trust that Dr. Pryor, who is joining us today, will just be encouraged herself talking about her passion. So we have with us today Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor. She is Research Professor of English and Christianity and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. She is the author of several books. Um, one is called Booked, Literature in the Soul of Me. She's also the author of Fierce Convictions and On Reading Well. Um, she has edited and also written introductions to several of the classics and the latest being The Scarlet Letter and Tess of the D'Urbervilles. So um, I actually just started reading Tess of the D'Urbervilles because you came out with this. So just loving it already, Dr. Pryor. She is co-editor of Cultural Engagement, a crash course in contemporary issues, and has contributed to numerous other books. She is host of the popular Jane and Jesus podcast. She has a monthly column for a religion news service. Her writing has appeared at Christianity Today, New York Times, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, First Things, Vox, Think Christian, The Gospel Coalition, Books and Culture, and other places. She is a contributing editor for Comment, a founding member of the Pelican Project, a senior fellow at the Trinity Forum, a senior fellow at the International Alliance for Christian Education, a senior fellow at the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture, and is a former member of the Faith Advisory Council of the Humane Society of the United States. And so, Dr. Pryor, welcome to the Women in Work podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. One of my favorite facts about you, though, is that you live in a 100-year-old house um, with dogs, chickens, and lots of books. I think I just love that. <laughs> <laughs> That's my okay. favorite fact about me, too. Yeah, Thanks. It's so exciting. <laughs> well, and I'm um, so... Sorry, go ahead. I was, go I was just going to tell funny. you, I listen, I've begun listening to your podcast, and just today I yeah. listened to two episodes, the one that... Um, talked about Elizabeth Bennett and mm -hmm. the second one about Jane Bennett from the, of course, the characters of Pride and Prejudice. And oh my goodness, it's like I found a new, a new little home <laughs> listening to these episodes because there's not a lot of people you can actually discuss um, some of these works with. So that's just been so much fun to find that podcast. Well, it was fun to do and I'm, I'm new to podcasting. So it's been an adventure and I've had wonderful guests on it. So I've learned so much from them. So, well, okay, Dr. Pryor, we start off each one of our podcasts with what we call our three rapid fire questions, which are just fun questions to get to know you. So are you ready to get started with those? I sure hope so. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the first one is as a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? A veterinarian. Oh, okay. yes. That maybe okay, explains well, the, you, the dogs and chickens. 
Yeah, I helped castrate. <laughs> I helped castrate a couple horses in my day as a kid. Ooh, okay. Well, now there's the facts that most. <laughs> I don't think I've ever shared this on a podcast before. I love it. It's a first. That is awesome. That is a first. Yeah, so first. yeah, I wasn't. We I wasn't. Honored, I wasn't even planning on saying that, but I, you know. <laughs> I worked on horse farms and I had horses and, and, uh, you know, when the vet comes, you, you just have to help. There you go. I am a city girl. And so I feel so enamored with the idea of living around horses and like just freely having access to them. And I think I've ridden a horse maybe twice in my life and I understand why people love them. They are beautiful. <laughs> okay. So besides helping to castrate horses, what was your first job? Um, my first um, real job, you know, besides mowing lawns, milking goats and babysitting children, um, my first job where I got an actual paycheck with money taken out for the government was at um, a, a greasy spoon called the Beef and Sirloin, home of the world's largest ice cream. Okay. <laughs> were you a server there or were you doing that? Yes, cream? I was. I was. I was. A, I, I, well, back then we called it you know, a wa- I was a waitress. Um, <laughs> so yes. Uh, and yes, that restaurant floored me. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's all truth here, ladies. So um, yes. And I wore uh, like an orange polyester apron. It was a fast food place. And so yes, I, I stood behind the counter, took orders, brought out food and scooped the world's largest um, ice cream. I also have a small scar on my wrist um, from when I got my hand caught in the milkshake blender. Oh, my goodness gracious. What uh, in the world? It was just, you know, it was just a little accident. Those blades go really fast and it nicked yes. my wrist oh. one day. Yeah. Okay. Oh, goodness. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, the last question is, what kind of work do you want to be doing when you're 80 years old? I want to be writing and mm-hmm. gardening. Okay. Oh, yes. Nice. Oh, yes. I can see that. As a city girl, I, it took me a while, but being able to get my hands in the soil, I, I appreciate it. I understand. So tell us a little bit about um, where you grew up. Obviously, it sounds like you were on a farm. Um, and then where do you live today? And then briefly kind of share with us how you came to faith in Christ. Yeah. Um, well, I grew up primarily in the state of Maine, uh, oh. which is very far northeast. And um, that's where uh, I lived, you know, in the country. We didn't really have a farm. We just had animals on country property. And uh, my yeah. grandparents were um, farmers who just lived off what they um, grew. So it was very rural and um, just humble. And uh, eventually moved to uh, Western New York, where I graduated from college and went, uh, went graduated from high school, went to college and went to grad school. Um, and I was born into uh, a Christian home. My parents actually became Christians after I was born, but I was little. And so we all started attending um church uh, for initially a Methodist church. And that's where I was first sort of like dedicated and christened. But then we went to, um, started going to a Baptist church. And so I um, received Christ as savior when I was five or six years old, got baptized, I believe around seven um, and just have been blessed to grow up in a, in a Christian home. Um, and my, my parents came into the Southern Baptist church um, as I was a young adult and I followed them. And so that's where I've been all this time. Yeah. So were there a lot of Southern Baptist churches in Maine? 
Uh, act, that's actually a very good question because there were not. And the Baptist churches that we attended were, um, you know, with my family. And then, you know, I married young and, um, and we went to Baptistic type churches too. So they were essentially either called Baptist or called Bible churches, um, you know, sort of independent type churches. And, uh, and, and my husband and I did not become a member of a Southern Baptist church until we moved to the South, which was 20 almost 23 years ago so okay yeah yeah I have a similar experience I grew up in Baptist churches but had not even even heard of the Southern Baptist Mm -hmm. as a denomination until we moved here and then I was really introduced to it so it's interesting Mm -hmm. okay so you describe yourself first as a reader before a professor and a writer I understand that because I used to put away books like food, right? Um, How did you come to love reading so much? And I know it sounds impossible, but can you tell us what your favorite book is? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, wow. Um, I can definitely tell you how I came to love reading. It just, it, you know, my mom read to all of us kids when we were little and it just stuck with me. So I always had my nose in a book. I was just always reading. Um, I was a little, you know, a little bit of a loner type, but also when we lived in the country, didn't have a lot of kids around. So I just spent a lot of time reading and playing with my horses and cats and dogs. (laughs) And um, yeah, that's going to be the hardest question. My favorite. (laughs) Um, I guess if I have to pick one, the one that just I love and return to the most and has had the most influence on my life, it would be um, Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre. Love it. Good. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Okay, well, so from this love of reading, can you talk about how you then began to write and then teach? Like, how did you realize, okay, this is really what I'm good at and what God has gifted me and, and really called me to to do in life? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting kind of complicated story because, as I already said, I envisioned myself being a veterinarian when I was a girl. And then, I, you know, at some point, I changed my mind and I wanted to be a psychiatrist. Um, And so when I entered, so I always loved to read and I loved English class. I just didn't know reading and writing were things that you could do professionally, really. I mean, Mm -hmm. um, it was just some, you know, I wrote poetry, I wrote stories, I, you know, did a lot of that, but I had these like career ambitions of, you know, being these uh, other kinds of professions. And so when I entered college, I actually um, was majoring in social work because I, I, didn't think I wanted to go to medical school to be a psychiatrist. I wanted to help people. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, I still didn't, you know, I didn't know you could study English and I, I, oh, and this is another important part, I think for you you and your listeners to know, I did not want to be a teacher. (laughs) (laughs) It's always that, that, right? It's always what puts his finger on what we say, never, never. I, you know, and I think, you know, I, I, I'm old enough that when I was growing up, there were still sort of limitations. The idea that women were going to be either teachers or nurses or just stay home, that was still, that was an idea that was ending. So I think there was part of me that just, um, and it it wasn't something conscious. It's not something that I I was aware of until I kind of look back. I think this is why I wanted to be a veterinarian. I wanted to be a psychiatrist. I wanted to do, because I was newly aware that I could do anything as a woman. Um, And so 
you know, I, I didn't know that, think about being a professor. I don't come from an academic family. That was not something that was even in my imagination. Uh, and I did not want to be a teacher, I think, because that was something that women were supposed to do. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I had all these other ideas. And so when I got to college, the short story is simply that I fell in, I realized you could study literature in a serious academic way. And I switched my major. Um, and when I, um, got out of college, well, I, I didn't, I still didn't want to be a teacher. So I thought, well, I could take my love of language into like marketing and communications. So I did a minor in that and I did an internship in a marketing agency. And that's where I discovered that I hate that world. <laughs> <laughs> and I, ha okay. I hate, I hate office life okay, <laughs> and cubicles. And so I graduated from college, literally not knowing what I was going to do. And so I having nothing, no other options, I applied to a PhD program. And by God's providence and miraculous hand, I got in. And that wow. and it wasn't until I was in that program um, and everyone else was teaching as, you know, as a graduate student, as as uh, as as happens, I thought, well, maybe I'll try that. Um, and so I taught my first college composition class and discovered what God created me to do. Hmm. Unbelievable. The one thing you didn't want to do. <laughs> the one thing I didn't want to do. <laughs> That's amazing. I love that. Well, a couple of years ago, my husband gave me for Christmas your book on reading well. And um, for our listeners who don't know, you basically mm -hmm. each chapter take a, a work of literature and you pull out a virtue from that work of literature. And so I actually in January decided, you know what, I'm going to use this as my guide. And in 2022, yes. I'm going to read through this and use this as my guide. So I started with Ethan Fromm because it's such a short little book. Right. Yes. Right. And it was really good. And the chapter was so the chapter you wrote on that was really good about chastity. And so you talk about in this book, um, really finding the good life. And so how would you describe you know, what is the good life and how does literature help us discover it? Oh, wow. How much time do we have? <laughs> no. So I'll start with what is the good life. And and this is an ancient philosophical and theological question, right? The the Greek philosophers who were pagans asked this question. Um, and, you know, they came up with, especially Aristotle, whom I draw in the book, he came up with, well, well, basically the good life is for a human being to do what a human being is supposed to do, which that's something, you know, as Christians, we can agree with. We, we, we would under, we would arrive at an answer to that question a different way. Um, but that's, that's really what I just answered your previous question with. I said, what that first time I taught that college course, I mm -hmm. discovered this is what God created me to do. Um, and yes. so, we can take that sort of ancient pagan philosophical answer to this question, what is the good life? And as Christians say, it is doing what God created us to do. And there is, you know, there are some answers to that that are always true, such as we were made to glorify God. Uh, right. That's first right. and foremost. Some of us were made to be bearers of his image as women, some as men, some as mothers, some as fathers, some as ministers, some as teachers, some as sisters, mothers, brothers. All of these, there are different ways um, that we discover what we were made to do. Uh, and, and that ultimately is the good life. Um, and what I do in the book is to, I draw on some specific virtues that have been 
you know, written about and taught about for, um, for millennia, uh, traditional virtues like prudence and chastity and um, temperance and justice. And I show how works of literature that aren't even necessarily supposed to be about those things still show us something about them and how the practice of reading is itself something that can cultivate virtue in us and help us to understand these virtues and apply them in our own lives. I love that. I just love it. I mean, just the act of reading to bring about virtue, yes. even just mm-hmm. choosing to read versus looking at my phone, which is just entertainment oh, yes. and just amusement and so mind numbing. But when mm-hmm. I turn to a book, I'm I'm using my brain. I'm thinking, I'm taking I'm in. interacting. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I'm learning um, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so um, I love that. And I just, as you were talking, I just kept thinking of Psalm 1 and the flourishing and they're planted by the river and, and you know, the leaf doesn't wither in whatever season. And um, I mean, that is what we want. We want the, the good life in the best sense of, of the word. And so, uh, yeah, thank you. I also don't know, Dr. Pryor, if people ha- recognize <clears throat> the ability to read as genuinely a gift. It really is, because if you think about all of the human beings who have lived on this planet since creation, most of them have not had that gift. They haven't had that ability, that blessing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we are just by living by virtue of living in the like the modern age um, Mm -hmm. after the printing press, which made print more available. And, you know, and now we have the digital age, which is another invention sort of that Mm -hmm. brings with it blessings and curses like the the printing Mm -hmm. press did. I mean, so we it is it is a gift. And it's one that um, as people of the word, in particular, I think God has called us to cultivate and preserve. Yes. yes. That's beautiful. So um, you are teaching and mm-hmm. I get the privilege of being at the school that you're teaching at. And so I'm sure that reading is, uh, I'm sure that's a part of your class, but your, your, your class is English and Christianity and culture. And I'm wondering, do students get introduced or have the opportunity to work with you through specific books like Jane Eyre, Pride and Prejudice, or are you doing overarching thing, themes in the semester? Yeah, I mean, I teach a variety of different classes. I would say for the most part, when I teach, I'm teaching literature in its sort of historical and um, literary context. So mm-hmm. if I teach, for example, a course in British literature to students who are, you know, not necessarily English majors, but they're fulfilling a requirement, we're doing this kind of broad survey. So we're looking reading works of literature in chronological order and looking at how those works of literature reflect. Well, in my case, in this case, British, you know, British culture, because I'm teaching British literature. Um, But one of my favorite classes to teach, and I got to teach that last year at Southeastern, is um, a course in the the history of the British novel. And so again, we're looking specifically Mm -hmm. at novels, we look at my favorite ones. But we also, I, I cannot teach literature apart from cultural history. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I'm always kind of applying what we might learn even in a novel written in, you know, 1740 in England. What does that show us about life today? And it can show us a lot. So we're learning about that time and that culture. And Mm -hmm. we're learning also about sort of the universal human condition and questions that we still struggle with. Um, So there's just a a lot of different ways of, of teaching literature and literary history um, and 
I don't really teach the way that that this on reading well goes that that was um, mm -hmm. really something designed for people who aren't necessarily um, readers or English majors in the classroom mm -hmm. who want to, you know, trying to draw them to what reading can do for us. Because as we've already mentioned, we're, there, there are so many other distractions. It's so much easier just to look at our phones and, um, and, but I think really reading can really do something for not just for our lives, but our, our character it can help us to live the good life. So I just I just had a thought. So Courtney and I we we go yeah, back and I've forth as well. Too. You go ahead, Missy. <laughs> yeah. I'm um, all about the thoughts. I love the thoughts. Yeah. So <laughs> as a child, though, I was introduced by books. Um, someone in particular said, "Missy, I think you should read this book." And the book was kind of mature for my age, but I remember reading the book and thinking, "Wait, there are places in the world that are so different than mine." Mm. I, I don't because I felt literally transported to that place. Mm -hmm. And so that developed a love for reading to me. And I remember reading like Little House in the Prairie mm -hmm. and then, and then Anne of Green Gables. And then these other books where I'm like, I'm, I felt like I was in a time warp or like I was able to jump to these places, but from a um, depressed community, it just seemed like my world would be this big because we didn't have much, but books really expanded my world in such a huge way. So then when I had the opportunity to read the Bible, the way I read the Bible, I engaged with it the way I had all these other books and it, it was so much more real to me. And so I just, yeah, the idea of sitting through your classes and hearing about the culture of that time and what was going on in that time is so valuable to really embrace like this person took the time to write something in particular for a reason. So yeah, just sounds like so much fun. Well, it sounds like I need to audit that class. <laughs> <laughs> any class, anytime. But Missy, what you just described to me, which I've never quite heard before um, from someone, seems like such a gift because you took your love of reading stories to the Bible mm -hmm. and you therefore were able to read the Bible, I think, in a way that is more correct and richer and fuller. Mm. I think a lot of people in my, you know, having grown up in, you know, Baptist churches and the evangelical community, um, among mainly people who don't necessarily read literature, mm -hmm. we approach the Bible and it took me forever to put the two together. We approach the Bible so differently. We, we read a verse, so we read it for an instruction. We read it for a moral. We take it apart and we don't read it for its fullness and its richness and as a story. Uh, and I think we're the worse off for it. And so I find people who read the Bible that way are often the ones who really aren't convinced of the value of reading literature because you, you just want to read it for the quotes, right? Or read right. it for the... You know. <laughs> yes. And right. so, yeah, you what a gift you have that you came to the Bible with that training in reading that comes from reading good books. Mm. It's almost mm. as if we take the Bible, it's like a scientific work instead of a literary work. And we're really trying yes. to piece it, take yes. it apart, analyze it um, instead of it's a piece of literature, you know? Um, mm -hmm. Right. But I was thinking of your college students when you were talking. When I was in college, I did not have a value at that time for good literature. And I remember in my literature class, I really only remember one story that I don't even think I read. It was Beowulf. And part, I don't remember reading British literature. I don't remember 
really being drawn in. And it wasn't until after seminary, I, you know, we were, my husband and I were five years at Southern Seminary in Louisville and graduated May, you know, and as soon as we graduated, I took myself down to Half Price Books, which is like a little chain in Louisville. Yes. And I picked up probably 10 or 15 classics. I thought somehow I have missed this. But I was so, you know, had just had all these years of reading these theological books. I just needed a, a break. And that really, you know, it just grew a love in me. And I think at that time I was a little bit older too. So it didn't feel right. like work. But um, I love how you described your class. It sounds so fascinating. Well, I know you're the host, but can I ask you a question? Sure. Of all those classics that at that time or any other time, which which one did you love the most? Pride and Prejudice. I mean, <gasps> every year. I mean, it's 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 you can't you can't you can't beat it. It's Pride and Prejudice. Although Jane Eyre is wow. a close second. I've read Jane Eyre wow. more than once wow. too. So yes. okay, wow. <laughs> I all have right. a daughter who, when she was seventeen, um, her she wanted her birthday party to be Pride and Prejudice. Like we have. <laughs> We just, that has just been one of the things. I have three girls. Two of them wouldn't touch with a 10 foot pole, but one of them absorbed. And I, I'm so grateful that we have to share that. Well, That's, and, and did, did she have that party? Yes. You had the party? No, we wound up, no, we wound up having a Coca-Cola theme party. That was so not the dream, but amen. Amen. At least, at least her heart was in the right place. Yes. Yes. So one of the things at Women in Work, Dr. Pryor, we love to really think about is, I mean, probably my personal favorite verse is Romans eleven thirty six. From him, through him, and to him are all things, you know, to God be the glory forever. And so we really love to really see the integration of, of God himself, who he is, and all of his amazingness, his glory within aspects um, people would kind of be surprised about, even literature, right? I mean, you don't pick up Pride and Prejudice and think, I'm going to learn about some quality of who God is. So um, one of the things you talk about in your new um, work that you've done with B&H Publishing, which is the writing the introductions to The Scarlet Letter and Tess of the D'Urbervilles, in that uh, publication, they it describes what you've done there. I've got a quote here. It says that you help readers not only navigate through the pitfalls that trap readers, which is huge, but also show them how to read it in light of the gospel and to the glory of God. And so I just wondered if you might talk about how, I mean, you kind of already hit on it a little bit with the virtue. If you even wanted to expand on how we can go to books as readers and really look for, for God in it. How do we do that? How do we cultivate that? Yeah, no, thanks for asking that because it does go so beyond even just virtues. I mean, that was a fun thing to study and to write about in that book, but um, but that's so even more confining than just who God is and his how he wants us to enjoy his creation and glorify him as we do. And um, a lot of my story, and I, I write about this in book literature in the soul of me, and I, I kind of left it out in what we were talking about before, but... I didn't, growing up in a Christian home and loving books, um, and then going to college and um, grad school to study literature, I never understood how to integrate those two things until I was near the end of my PhD program. Okay. And I thought that I had to, I thought, I just, I don't know why, but I just compartmentalized those things. I, I thought, okay, I go to church and youth group and Sunday school over here. I read these books that nobody in my church or Sunday school experience talks about. Um, and so those are like two different worlds. 
And it wasn't until I was in uh, my PhD program that I discovered something called Christian worldview, um, which is, you know, just integrating biblical truth and principles into all of life so that you can just see God uh, and see his truth in everything. And mostly when we talk about Christian worldview, you know, we're talking about in the political realm or in, you know, culture and society, but you can also do that with literature. Um, and so learning to read literature and teach it from a Christian worldview, um, it changed, it changed my life. Hmm. And it's also, it's what I want to do help readers do is to not just see how this is true of literature, but through through the practice of of seeing God in a work of literature, maybe we can see God in a lot of other things too. Like if, if you're an accountant, you can you can see God in just the way you do that kind of work. If you if you're, you know, a gardener, you can see God and glorify him through that. Um, I mean this is really basic stuff, <laughs> I think in some ways, but um it just wasn't something that I was that I was taught or understood when I was when I was growing up to just yeah. and and I've had the experience of um, actually teaching some works of literature. Uh, I was a visiting professor for a few years off and on at a a secular school nearby um, because I just kind of wanted to you know make sure I wasn't entirely living in the Christian bubble. Mm-hmm. And so there were times when I was teaching a work of literature like Tess of the D'Urbervilles in my Christian classroom at the same time I was teaching it in a secular classroom. Wow. And it was like night and day. It felt so wow. shallow and superficial to teach just the literature sure. in the secular classroom, but then to teach that literature and apply it to life and to God's truth and and weave it into all those things. It's so rich and robust. Um I wouldn't really know how to read literature uh, or teach it any other way now. So this is a perfect segue because the question we I wanted to ask you next was, and you've sort of touched on it, how do you as a professor and as an author, how do you see the aspects of your work image God in your day to day and in your in the, the mundane even parts of it? Yeah, that that's a, such a good question because we all... I have to do that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would say, you know, so in my particular discipline, which is literature and language, I mean, there are things that uh, that I teach about how um, just language itself and and words um, reflect our being made in the in the image of God. So the things that we can learn about God's nature and uh, our image of him in the way that we understand literature. Uh, and, and I don't even mean the stories themselves. I mean, just like the nature of the written word. And that's something I like to talk about with my students at the beginning of, of classes. And then when we read the stories, of course, you know, I want to glorify him by, um, talking about the things that these stories show us, whether they are, whether they are worldviews that are not biblical, how can we see Tess of the Durbervilles is a great example because Hardy was, um, he was had he was an eighth you know he was a christian who became an atheist who became an agnostic and he was angry at his christian culture um and he was criticizing it and there were so there is so much truth in his criticism and yet he misses the biggest thing of all he misses like the grace of god in his story and so we can learn a lot of of what he gets right and then we can say but what does he miss 
in this mm. story. And we can do that with every work of literature um, and not just novels. We can, we can, poems help us to see the world in a different way and to, to um, consider it in a different way, to use metaphors and similes, which are things that God does throughout the Bible because he can't, you know, just as, um, you know, Moses could not look on the face of God and live. Mm -hmm. All he could see was the back of God. Um, That's what literature is. It's like the back of God. Um, We can see a little glimpse, a little bit of his truth and his glory enough to help us understand more of who he is. Um, And, you know, then of course there are the mundane things, but when I'm, you know, when I'm, uh, working with students who aren't as excited as I am, or I'm grading their papers. Um, you know, I, I need to, you know, that is work that I need to do faithfully and well and be a representative of Christ um, in the way that I do those things, um, whether it's the tedious part or the unpleasant part, you know, working with a student who maybe has done something wrong. Um, you know, that, that's part of what the call of a teacher is. And we have to do that in a way that glorifies Christ, no matter whether we're at a Christian institution right, or not. Right. So I'm currently a student. And I think to myself, just as you were talking, I would love learning to write from you, but I would also be so intimidated learning to having Definitely. to write for you. <laughs> 100%. <laughs> I, you know, I, th- I think one of my strengths as a teacher of both literature and writing is that I none, it doesn't come easily to me. And so I think that I, you know, there's some people out there, you know, the, the people who are brilliant geniuses who just kind of have a natural way with something that they do, it's, can be very hard for them sometimes to explain it to other people. Well, I can explain it to other people because I have to explain (laughs) it to myself. (laughs) So So for women who, you know, they've heard your story and of of coming into what God has called you to, I mean, I'm thinking there are no doubt women who have said, God, I will never do this or that. Right. (laughs) Um, No doubt that that has had an impact on someone listening right now, but how would you say women can discern their own calling, especially in light of their passions? And, you know, there's this whole thing of, um, well, if I follow what I want to do, is that just pride? Or, you know, is God's call in opposition to or somehow in conjunction with what my passions are? How would you talk about that? Yeah, this is actually a, a favorite topic of mine because being in the writing world, I'm around a lot of people, especially women who who want to be in in that world or part of that world. And it, and it can be tough because, because like, as with all things, not everyone is successful in it or, you know, even no matter how we determine success. So I would just say very briefly that passion is something that we have inside us and calling is something that comes from outside. Okay. Um, so, I mean, just like a literal, like call, if your yeah. phone, like who's calling, right. Um, and so I, th- you know, I think those are just two simple facts that, anyone might agree with. But then if we look at those as Christians, we say, okay, so if a passion is something that's inside us, we know that we were created by God. um, And in his providence and his sovereignty, I believe he gives us passions, he gives us desires. um, And he also puts us in circumstances where those passions and desires might or might not be fulfilled, right? He's, he's sovereign over all those things. So there's an element in which that passion comes from God and, and we need to steward it. The calling, um, you know, calling can come from anyone. It, we, someone who is not 
wanting to honor and glorify God might be calling us, right? Um, but God might be calling us. He might be using his people to call us. So so we have a passion. There are different callings. I mean, I you know, some of us are getting called in far too many directions, right? I True. mean, it's just like, and yeah. we, ha- we have to discern which calls to answer and which ones not to. Um, and so that's, that's hard. I wish I had, had an easy answer, but I do think that we cannot assume that a, our passion and our calling are the same thing or that they will line up. And so if we have a passion and we don't get that external call, then our, then our question is to go before the Lord and say, okay, so how do I use this passion that I don't seem to be being called for in the way that I thought I should be or want to be like, you know, we've all been, well, I don't know. I'm old, but I've been, you know, sitting there waiting for the guy to call. Right. Um, And like feeling like kind of helpless, like, oh, I just want him to call. I want him to call. He eventually did, by the way. And we've been married 37 years. Um, But, you know, but that feeling like is out of your control. Like I want him to call. Um, well, that's the same thing with, with work and with, you know, with writing or anything else. Like it's not entirely up to us. And just because we want it doesn't mean it's going to happen. So we really have to mm-hmm. um, trust the Lord and be faithful um, to, to to the point where those things do line up. And that may not be in the ways that we always imagine or want. Man, so this is so good because I don't think I've actually ever heard someone clearly articulate that, that I can be passionate about something, but in Christian spaces, we make every passion our calling, right? Uh (laughs) And so I think that is just beautiful that I can be passionate about something, but God not, not necessarily opened the avenue for me Mm -hmm. to like get rich off of that passion. Right. Right. So one of the things that is true that the Lord will do often is call us to surprising things that we just don't feel called to even if it's something that I have no passion for that, or I had a passion for this, but you didn't give it to me. And I know that you've written about this in in your experience that in your own life, you've written about it in childlessness. And you've also talked to us about it, about becoming a teacher. Like there are things that I'm passionate about over here, but you've given me something else. What might God be up to in women's lives when he's when what he's leading us into isn't the typical Christian view of womanhood or of marriage, especially as it relates to to our vocation and his glory. Yeah, we definitely are living in a time in the church in a place where we have this sort of hardened image of what exactly like Christian womanhood is supposed to look like, right? And um, yes. and there are so many for whom that doesn't look like that. I mean, I think I've checked a lot of some of the boxes, you know, married, mm-hmm. young, happily uh, faithful for all these years. Um, but we were never able to have children, which is something that I just assumed. I mean, all, even as a little girl, I wanted to be a mother. And I even right. I was very conscious about this. I said that I said, well, I want to go to college and have a career because I think that will make me the best mother I can be. So even mm-hmm. that plan yeah, yeah. was in service to what I really wanted to do or was to be a mother. And of course there are ways that you can become a mother without, you know, having your own biological children. And Mm -hmm. and we explored those, but it was really at the moment when we had to make those decisions that God clearly called me to, I was already teaching, but to more writing and speaking. And by the way, I will tell you that I do not 
have a passion for speaking. But he's wow. calling you. But I it. keep getting the calls. <laughs> wow. And so I I you know, so I, I'm trying to be faithful to right. those calls. Mm-hmm. People are asking and, and and I'm doing. Um and so um so it was just very clear to me that God had something else. I'm not the kind of person, maybe there are maybe there are a few of you out there. I'm not the one who can do everything. <laughs> So I know my, I'm just my people, people have the illusion I get, I don't know, you know, I guess maybe, I don't know, they they think I'm super strong or something. And maybe in some ways I am, but I'm just, I'm not, I'm really not that strong. Like I need a lot of sleep. I need regular exercise. I need food, food. (laughs) And, um, you know, I, my body does not handle stress very easily. So I just know, I I don't, I mean, I don't know what God's, all his thoughts and plans were, but I, I, I was like, I, I feel like I came to a place in my life where God knows me better than I do. His plans are better than mine. Believe me, I tried earlier in life to, to do things my way. Um, I finally learned just trust God. He has his reasons and I don't want to do anything that's outside of his will. So, um, so my life does, you know, it checks some of the boxes for evangelical Baptist Christians, but not all of them. Um, and I mean, God's box is just so, you know, it's so huge. And, um, and he has so many different ways that he can use all of us, but especially women to, um, to minister, to serve, to teach, um, to help others to flourish. Um, it's just an honor and blessing to be used by him in the ways that he is using me. That's right. Yeah. And I'm sure this was something since you wanted to be a mother, there was probably a time of just grieving that loss of like, okay, this is not what the Lord had, but here I am open hands to you, Lord, I'll, I'll do what, you know, I'll, I'll take these speaking engagements or, you know, whatever <laughs> it is that's coming your way. So what advice or instruction would you give to women about the topic of work ethic and patience as they mm-hmm. pursue and really begin, if it's a career they're after, whatever, you know, whatever he's got them in the moment. You know, I I think this is another place where social media has um, committed a great deception. I think Mm. a lot of young people, well, and not even just young people, but we see these images of like success and victory flash in front of us every day. We see the results. We don't see the work. Mm -hmm. And it's so easy to think that things will come quickly or easily um, if they come at all. And so, I mean, I often have students come to me and and they look at my life, they see my life and they say, I want to be like you. I want to write books and, you know, be on Twitter and uh, write articles. Um, And they say, how can I be like you? And I will tell them, this is the first thing I've said this so many times. I said, well, if you want to be like me, you won't publish your first book until you're 47 years old. Hmm. And I tell you, when those 22 year olds come to me with that question, they look at me and (laughs) that is not the answer they wanted to hear. Now, I'm not Mm. saying they have to do that. But the point of that story is I was well established. I had, you know, I was old. (laughs) I had had a PhD. Mm. I'd been teaching for a number of years. Um, I had put in a lot of years of work before I would dare to take my words out there to share with the world. And so um, life is long work hard, be patient, um, enjoy the journey. Uh, and don't be in such a hurry because you can't take things back once you've done them, but you certainly can do them better when you wait and you have a strong foundation. That's, 
my patience. advice. Really wow. Mm-hmm. Patience is also like a, like a gift, a lost art. I don't think, mm-hmm. I think we forget how much God is doing for us mm-hmm. when we're patient. When my kids were little, I used to say to them, what's the difference between waiting and being patient? And I would tell them, it's just your good attitude. <laughs> it's just, it's the heart that says I can hold on until yes. you say it's yes. time. That's yes. good. Oh. Yeah. And pa- patience is one of the virtues I write about in Unreading Well, and it's the one that I needed to write about the most for myself. Mm. Mm. <laughs> and you know, yes. Dr. Pryor, just you saying that your first book was published when you were 47, I can't tell you just in since since women in work began, how many women I have rubbed shoulders with who said the exact same thing. They were in their 50s mm. when God yes. really put his hand on their ministry and, you know, they saw some amazing things happen. So I just, it really helps Every, it just helps you have perspective on your life um, right. and a lot of maturity. We all need to grow in maturity and yes. why not just trust the Lord and learn and grow? That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And at wisdom. Yeah. Okay. That's a whole other podcast and conversation. <laughs> so what I love is that you have been described as the evangelical church's favorite literature professor, but yet you faced heavy criticism for some of your stances that have been, I would even say not even like dramatic or edgy, right? Some of them, I feel like, <laughs> what? What? <laughs> um, what wisdom can you share about how to engage with ideological opponents or just crazy people on Twitter <laughs> in real life? <laughs> Ooh, depends on what day you ask me. But no, okay. <laughs> I know sometimes I just want to say when I get some, I want to, like people are just shocked that the Southern Baptist woman has Southern Baptist views. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness, right? <laughs> right? Um, yes. Uh, yeah, I, I feel like my views and positions are pretty um, uh, conventional, but, you know, but the ground is shifting un- underneath us. And so yes. I think that's what's happening. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, our, my views are, the, are you know, of course, we all want to think this, they're, they're consistent, they're holistic, and they don't, that means that they aren't going to line up necessarily with any particular tribe or political party. And so mm-hmm. if you err in one way against one of these other secular groupings, then you're, you know, then you're a heretic or, or whatever. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I, you know, I am, I am learning and growing and maturing in this area as we speak. Um, so I am learning, what I'm learning now is, and this has been hard, is that I don't have to respond to everything on Twitter. And I don't even mean just the negative things. I mean, even the positive things. For me, Twitter was always like the classroom. And someone Mm. who replied to me was like a student raising their hand. Mm. I would never ignore a student raising their hand. Mm -hmm. And I've had to really work hard to, to change my habituation toward Twitter so that, because for one thing I have so many, it's not good stewardship with the number of followers and replies that I get to answer everyone. Like that's just foolish. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's been hard for me to like kind of change my internal wiring um, to see it that way. And so So learning not to reply to everything good and bad, you know, good or bad has helped me to not reply to, you know, the people who have, who just simply want attention and want to stir things up or get it, provoke a response out of me. And so 
Um, so that's one thing I'm learning. I also have never, this might just be the way the Lord made me, but I just don't really take much personally. Um, that's great. so that's great. <laughs> if somebody, <laughs> yeah, I just, it's about them, not me. If somebody has a problem, I'm like, it, I just doesn't, I, it's not something I take personally. So I think that helps as well. Um, and the other thing, um, and this is probably true of most of us, I, the people, if I could count the 12 most important people in my life, something like that, some number like that. And not a single one of them is on Twitter. There you go. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, yeah. I mean, more, more of them are on Facebook, of course, but um, you know, my, my, and Twitter, you know, Twitter is real. It's the things that happen on there matter, but it's such a small slice. I mean, I've got Mm -hmm. my dogs, I've got my old house, I've got my parents who are elderly living here with me, and I've got my Mm -hmm. students, and I've got papers to grade, and I've got books to read, and I really, like, that's what life is, Um, and church, and God, and our testimony, and so um, it's easy to forget that in, because Twitter is and other social forms of social media are designed, they're, they're there to pull us in because that's how they make their money is by keeping our attention. So it's very, very hard, but we have to be intentional um, to resist that pull and, and to let these platforms be tools for us that we can use rather than being used by them. That's excellent. That's huge. That's Amen. advice. <laughs> Well, Dr. Pryor, as we kind of wrap up our conversation with you, this is something we we ask all of our our guests, but I also want to add a little caveat to to this question yes. for you. Um, so it's really one question in two parts. So is what piece what one piece of advice would would you leave with women who just in general, women in general who want to honor God through their calling, through vocational calling, but also specific to you, what about women in particular who want to write? What advice would you give them? Okay, good question. So, I mean, the way we honor God in any calling is, um, of course, just by being obedient. And that, you know, I think for most of us in this world that we live in today, that means really trying to um, distinguish the false callings from the true ones, right? And to the, the voice of God from the other voices. And so, um, There's so many things demanding and calling for our attention, so many things pulling at our desires and planting false desires in us. Um, And I think that's especially true for women. And so we just have to be obedient to his call. And a lot of that means just figuring out what that is. And, And but knowing that it's not that there are competing voices for that call. And in writing specifically, I would say, um, And, you know, I've had a lot of conversations about women who want to be writers. Um, And what I want, the first thing I would kind of ask rhetorically for them to, to consider, or I guess I would say is, you know, do you want to be a writer or do you want to be seen? Wow. Because so much of what I hear about people, want, they, they mistake the art and craft of writing, which anyone can do in their corner, in their journal, um, mm-hmm. anywhere, that's not the same thing as being seen. Mm-hmm. And I do think that they're in this world that is so visual and so spectacular and, and so driven by image and surface and appearance 
um, we do have this desire implanted in us, which is not a godly one, um, to be seen by the masses. I mean, but what we really need to be seen and know we're seen by God, by the people in our lives, um, and that those are the things that really matter most, um, and that writers write just like painters paint and gardeners garden and pastors mm -hmm. preach and mothers mother and veterinarians administer medicine to animals. So if you are a writer, write, but understand mm -hmm. that that is not the same thing as being seen or being published or as Missy mentioned earlier, just getting rich off of it. Mm -hmm. um, believe me, it's not the same. Um, <laughs> and so if you want to be a writer, write. Um, and there, if you really believe that's your calling, um, then pursue it in a studious way, which means just like anything else, like you practice it, you learn from experts, you go to conferences, you, you um, surround yourself by other people in the field, just like you would do um, with anything else. And then you'll know that that is what you are called to do. That's excellent advice. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think we have just, this is one of those master classes, right? Where you learn so much in such a small amount of time, but it's so rich. Thank you so much, Dr. Fryer. Yes. Oh, thank you for having me. You asked great questions. And I have, I, I've never talked about castrating horses on, on the podcast <laughs> before. So you can win honored. some sort of prize. <laughs> We're honored. We'll put that on our website and that'll make everyone jump to the womenwork.net page. <laughs> if, if you dare. Now I will dare to put that on Twitter. Twitter, so, <laughs> All right. Well, it has been such a pleasure and such an honor for us Absolutely. to have you today. Thanks again for coming on. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners for joining us today. Be sure to check out our website at womenwork.net for today's show notes. There will be more information about today's conversation there. Do you long to study the Bible more deeply and be better equipped to teach God's Word? That's why Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary offers a variety of flexible degree options that empower you to do just that. Through its diverse selection of certificate programs, master's degrees, and advanced degrees, Southeastern desires to equip women to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. Southeastern believes that God has commanded each of us to go and make disciples by teaching His Word and sharing the truth about Jesus Christ. Southeastern would be privileged to play a part in your growth in His Word and your training to fulfill the Great Commission in all of life. To find out more, explore degree options, or to schedule a visit, check out sebts.edu. And please take a minute to subscribe to our show and also give us a rating and review so more listeners can find us. And with that, we hope you've been inspired to more confidently step into your God-given calling and view your work as meaningful to the kingdom of God. See you next time, friends.